Well, good morning, everyone. Please uh, remain standing. Uh, before we get to the scripture reading today, I did want to take a few seconds to uh, honor uh, what this weekend stands for in our country. It's Memorial Day weekend, and for most that means three-day weekend, super sales at stores, and barbecues. But what it really means is that we can come and do this. We can sing. We can read from this book. We can say the name of Jesus. We can proclaim our faith because we are still a free nation. And untold lives have been lost on this side of eternity for this very special privilege. So let's take a few seconds of silent honoring and remembering to those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for us to be able to come and do this. Remember that this is a precious privilege. It is a God-given right, but it is not necessarily a right that we will always have. So let us cherish with some silence. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The words of Jesus mere hours before the crucifixion. He says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with the work of your spirits in the hearts and the minds and the wills of those who are gathered in this place. Lord, those who are watching online now, those who will watch at a later date, already determined by your choosing, whether they acknowledge that or not. Lord, I pray for the work of your Spirit to bring your truth to bear on our lives, 
Lord, as you continue your work within us, draw us closer to you. May our hearts deepen in love for you. May our minds be renewed and transformed by the truth of your word so that what we think about you and ourselves and the world will change. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with doubt, I pray for words of assurance. Lord, for those of us struggling with disbelief, Lord, I pray for words of compelling clear truth and conviction, conversion, Lord God, to your truth, not the lies of the world. For those of us who are discouraged because we continue to watch the news, Lord, I pray for words of assurance and comfort that you are still sovereign and that your will is being worked out even in the midst of of chaos and deceit and all the things our society is going through. Lord, for those of us who just may be weary, Lord, I pray for a renewed work of your spirit to bring strength and courage. Lord, your strength and your courage to stand even more strongly in confidence in your goodness and in your gospel, and in your grace, and your power to change our lives. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus, your son, is lifted up. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your son, O Father God, that we do pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. What does it mean to be the church? As we've talked about before in this series, the church is not the building. Although we're very grateful to have a building, it is great to have a place to come and to assemble and to have coffee and to pray and to praise and to hear preaching and to fellowship with one another. It is wonderful. It's marvelous to do that. The church is not a program. What we are doing right now in worship is not, we're not doing church. The church is worshiping. The church is assembled. Church is not an activity. The church is not a social club, although most substitute the reality for that. Hear this next one very clearly. The church is not a social services agency. You will actually hear this in so many sectors of society. The church is supposed to be the one taking care of everybody and meeting needs. Now, yes, the church is to minister in that way, but the church does not exist to simply be a social services agency for those who are hurting. And also something we need to be very clear about. The church is not a political action committee. It is not a political voting block. The church cannot be reduced or pigeonholed or slighted to being any or even all of those things. The church is so much more. 
The English word church comes from the German word kirsha, which has its roots in the Greek term kyriakos, which means belonging to the Lord. The church is those who belong to the Lord. The church is those who care about what belongs to the Lord. The church is those who are endeavoring and working on behalf of the Lord. The word used by Jesus and the other New Testament authors in the original language of the New Testament, which is Koine Greek or common Greek, is the word ekklesia. That is the word translated as church into English. And the, the word ekklesia means the called out or the called together ones. So therefore, a church cannot be just simply a, a, a place It cannot be a program. The church is the people who are called out of the world through faith in Jesus and called together under the authority of that name. The apostle Peter puts it so perfectly in his first letter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out, called you out, who ecclesied you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is the people who belong to God through faith in Jesus. The people who have answered the call to come out of the world, out of darkness, out of the ways of the world, out of personal sin, communal sin, worldwide sin. They're called out of that into relationship a relationship where there is regeneration of the soul, where there is renewal of the mind, where there is a repurposing of life. The church is the ones who are called out. Sitting in a church does not make one a called out one. Sitting in a garage does not make you a car. The church is those who have responded of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation, of every strata of society. What that means for us, it does not matter which name is on the sign outside the building. It does not matter which name that is associated with a gathering of, of, of people who have come together to worship. In those gatherings, there are, there are those who are called out and those who are still get to respond to the call. There's no, there, there, there's no magical place to go and just simply be, now I'm a part of the church. It is through faith in Jesus alone. And it's the people who belong to him. This is where personal faith comes in. This is where personal discipleship, personal allegiance comes The called are those God draws to himself through Jesus. 
Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except that the Father draws him. The church, therefore, is the people who belong to God through saving faith. Saving faith is not praying a prayer. It is not signing a card. It is not going through a membership class. It is not reading Scripture. It is not memorizing Scripture. It is not trying to live a good life. It's not getting all of your ducks in a row. Saving faith is this. It is belief in Jesus dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. Then it is trust in those two actions. It is trusting that my sins are taken away, my sins are cleansed, my sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. And then it is trusting Jesus as the Lord of my life because he conquered death our greatest enemy, the enemy that will defeat every single one of us as human beings, Jesus conquered with our allegiances to him. And he is worthy of trusting since he beat death. That's what saving faith is. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just getting um, going forward at a church. It's not even just confessing your faith. It's not just getting baptized. It's not just going through Bible studies and reading scripture, even memorizing scripture. It is saving faith in Jesus, believing in what he did, trusting in who he is with the very essence of our lives, our very eternal souls. That's what saving faith is. And the people who do that, they are the church. Those who belong to God, those who were not a people but are now a people, God's special possession One of the older translations, I believe, it's the King James, puts it so eloquently, but you are a peculiar people. Amen and amen. I'm all for peculiar. The church is the people who belong to God through faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul calls the church the body of Christ, This is a beautiful and pointed reminder that the mission of the church, what it means to be the people of God, the people who belong to God through faith in Jesus, the called out ones, the called out ones are called to something. Called to do what? To continue the work of Jesus in the world. You see, the template for the ministry that Jesus did that we are to emulate is so perfectly summarized in Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The seminary that I went to had an undergraduate school attached to it, and a couple of the classes were in the, the undergraduate uh, part, of the, part of the campus. So I had a class in there, and I was... It, I, to be honest, I don't remember what the class was. Couldn't tell you. Uh, even under threat of death, I could not remember that class whatsoever. I'm sure I got good notes from it. But in that undergraduate class was this beautiful plaque. It was a beautiful work of art. And that, that picture, that, that work of art, captivated me that entire semester. It was simply this. Jesus came preaching, teaching, healing. That's our mission as the church. That's what we are to do. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, teaching and healing. That's the mission. 
That's what we are called to do as the church, called out of the world and called to serve God in the world. That's what we're to be about. That's the purpose of the church. Not just to have Sunday morning gatherings, not just to run a bunch of programs, not to be there for pastoral support for people. All those things are true and good and necessary, but that is not why we exist. We exist to proclaim, to teach, and to bring healing into this world. We continue the work of Jesus because Jesus is no longer physically present with us. After his resurrection, Jesus retained a measure of physicality. As God became God in the flesh, we read that in Philippians chapter 2, the Son of God, the Word of God took on flesh at a point in time and a point in the created order, and he retained a physical aspect of his nature forever. The resurrection body is not merely corporeal. It's not as, not as physical with its limitations as we are, obviously. But as the Son of God became flesh, he retained a measure of physicality, and one of the limitations of that is location. The expansion of Jesus' kingdom required his ascension back into heaven, the rightful place at the right hand of God the Father to reign and to rule over creation, to do his work, to bring everything into subjection under his authority. That's what Jesus is doing now. That's where he is. But as Jesus left, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit would come in his place, and all of a sudden, the physical limitations are no longer relevant. The Spirit is everywhere, can be everywhere. It is not bound to a location, not bound by any limits of physicality. The Spirit moves and works. The Spirit is the one who would empower the greater works that Jesus talked about with his disciples. The works of Jesus were amazing. People were healed. Physical deformities were actually changed, and it was visibly seen that withered limbs were restored to full health. Legs that were, were shriveled and deformed were returned to perfect form and working order. Physical deformities were changed. People were actually brought back from the dead. And Jesus has the audacity to say that as my followers, you will do even greater things than you have seen? How is that even possible? I've prayed for people and they've gotten better or they they died a lot later than I thought they were going to die. I don't have the ability to, to restore withered limbs. But Jesus says, my followers, as my, as my followers, you'll do greater works. I have grieved with families who have lost children. We've prayed for miracles. We've prayed for intervention. And death has not been stayed. Death has not been reversed. How can Jesus say, you will do greater works? Because greater does not always mean more impressive. It means larger in scale. 
exponential impact, exponential application of the work of Jesus. That's the greater works. Jesus, with the limits of physical, his physicality, his physical location, even though the scriptures say he, he worked late into the night, beyond sundown, healing people. There were still people to be healed. But now through the coming of the Holy Spirit and the people of Jesus being scattered all across the world, the works of Jesus proclaiming, teaching, and healing are done around the clock in all cultures, on all continents, in all stratas of society. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people every day on this globe place faith in Jesus for the very first time. They become the called out ones, the ones called to ministry because the works of Jesus are now greater because they've exponentially increased. That's the work of the church. That's our purpose. To emulate what Jesus did, proclaiming, teaching, and healing. What we proclaim is this, the gospel the good news. The good news is not that just that we can be forgiven and our sins can be cleansed. The good news is not that we just get a get into heaven free card at the end of our lives. That is not the gospel. The good news is this. Jesus is king. Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. Satan is not. Self is not. Jesus is king, and his kingdom is real and present and powerful, and it is unshakable, and it is unstoppable, and it is unconquerable. That's the kingdom that we are a part of. Jesus is king. With Jesus as king, we can get worked up and upset about who is or who is not the president, who is or who is not the prime minister, who does or does not wear the crown at certain points. All we can know is this. Every single one who holds an office, who wears a crown, who wields power in this world, their power is limited. Their reign is limited. Jesus' reign is unlimited. And his rule will not be surpassed. Jesus is king. And his kingdom is present and powerful. That's what we have to proclaim. Because Jesus is king, then yes, we can be forgiven. We can be made new. We can become the people of God and the children of God. Because Jesus is the king who reigns and rules over all. We proclaim that forgiveness for all is through Jesus because of his vicarious death and his victorious resurrection. This is such an incredible... We were on, we're this far on the side of the cross that we, we miss the impact of this. You see, Jesus did not die just for the Jews. He died for the Jews and the Gentiles. In, in, in the Jewish mindset, the whole world is Jew and Gentile. If you have Jewish blood, you're Jewish. If you have non-Jewish blood, you are Gentile. Red, yellow, black, and white, doesn't matter. You're just all a Gentile. And every religion up 
to the time of Jesus was predominantly an ethnic religion, a tribal religion, a localized religion. Some minor exceptions throughout history. But for the most part, religion was ethnicity-based. It was regionally-based. Jesus comes and says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, to every ethnicity. That's, that's the literal what the nations means. To every ethnicity. Because Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the Jews. He's not just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the Messiah for all people. He is Savior. He is Lord. And it is only in Jesus that every tribe and tongue and nationality is unified under his kingship. Even today, and especially today, the church, the people who belong to God through Jesus, represent every ethnicity. The church is the greatest diversity statement, the greatest diverse entity on the entire planet. The enemies and the critics would, would love to say that Christianity is inherently racist or, or, or biased towards a certain race. That is just simply untrue. Because the church, the people of God, those who are called out are from every tongue and tribe and nation on this planet. Jesus is the great unifier. And, and this forgiveness for all is so incredible because it is so profound. After his resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples and he says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. In Jesus, sins are forgiven. In Jesus is salvation. In no one else, in no other name. That's why Jesus is so important. That's what we have to proclaim continually. Jesus came teaching. Jesus taught some of the most profound truths that have ever been taught or recorded in the history of this world. The truth Jesus revealed about God as Father remains unsurpassed. In the Jewish revelation, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, there is a small glimmer of the fatherhood of God. But it's God as father of all people or God as the father of the nation. It's a very limited scope. Jesus comes into the, onto the scene and says, our father who is in heaven, your father knows you. Your father loves you. And now you, you cannot escape a discussion with God that will not bring in the concept of God as Father, this concept of God as love. It's one of my favorite things in, in, in hearing or even talking to people who don't believe in God. One of the biggest questions is, well, how can a loving God send someone to hell? 
I'm like, well, that's a great question. That's an important question. That's a question that's going to require a long discussion. But let me ask you one question first. Why do you call God loving? Because obviously God is loving. God is love. It's like, oh, okay. Where do you get that from? I don't know. You get it from Christianity. It doesn't come from any religion prior to Jesus. In fact, if you look at every mythology and every tribal religion and every religion, God, God or the gods are not described as loving. They are described as vengeful. They are described as fickle. They are described basically as exalted humans in most forms that have the same whims and weaknesses that humans have. They just seem to come with some extra powers. Jesus completely rewrites the paradigm on who God is and what God is like. God is Father. God is loving. So we teach us about God the Father. We we teach about the upside-down ethics of the kingdom and how the upside-down ethics of the kingdom can infiltrate the kingdoms of this world and create absolute chaos. Instead of pride, Christians are humble. Instead of striving to be first, Christians strive to be last. Instead of being the greatest, we seek to be the least. And when you put those principles into work, yes, in the real world, in the workplace, all sorts of chaos happens it's interesting now that as business principles are studied, one of the, the, the hot topic in the business world is, and it has been for quite a while, is the concept of servant leadership. It's, you know, to be a leader, you need to, you need to serve, you need to give, you need to be a good example, you need to nurture and care for and bring people, all those kinds of things. That terminology, that concept is only rooted in one source, Jesus. That's it. They won't acknowledge that. Jesus turns the world upside down. What Jesus did for us and how he did it is to be the standard we are to emulate Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the deal. You put this into practice in your your world, in your work, in your relationships. Yeah, you're going to get squished sometimes. You're going to get bypassed. You're going to get ridiculed. You're going to get ignored. You will be passed over for promotions. You will be taken for granted. A whole host of potentially negative things can happen. But sometimes just the opposite will happen. And then regardless of what happens, God knows. God notices. God takes note. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. May not be in the company, but it definitely will happen in eternity. Which weighs more, work or eternity? 
And I'm not saying just roll over and be dead and be walked on. That's, that's not what we're saying here. But in full spiritual strength, die to self. Seek to serve, not to be served. To be humble. Emulate Jesus and see how it works out. It really is the methodology that has changed the world, created civilized society, and done so much more. We are to teach what Jesus explicitly commanded us as his followers to do, and that's to love. Love God first. Love God with all, above all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the entirety of the being. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, even the neighbor who throws dog poop in your yard. The neighbor who has chickens that make way too much noise at 5 o'clock in the morning. Fortunately, the neighbor I had like that, the chicken died. (laughs) Mysteriously, had nothing to do with it. Love your neighbor who plays music too loud, too late at night. Love your neighbor is, is, is language that actually means it's just consider everyone your neighbor. Everyone who is in need, who needs care and compassion is your neighbor, so serve them. Love them as you would love yourself. Jesus specifically commanded his disciples to love one another, to, to love other disciples exactly how Jesus loved them which was through service and mercy and kindness and sacrifice. That's the kind of love we are to have for one another. In fact, Jesus says that's the only way the world will know you're my disciples if you love. The world doesn't know we're Jesus' disciples because we can recite Scripture, because we we know the Bible. It doesn't doesn't know we're disciples because we live righteously or or we live distinctly in, in terms of a moral code. Those things are all good. But where it comes down to is the world will know we're the disciples of Jesus if we love like Jesus loved. And that's always the highest calling and the highest challenge. And if this wasn't enough, Jesus says, oh yeah, in addition to loving God, in addition to loving your neighbor who is basically everybody in need and loving one another, specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, love your enemies too. Love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. And bless there does not mean, by the way, bless his heart. It means to actually pray a blessing, asking God to bless those who have wronged you. Man, that's spiritual graduate school. That's PhD level stuff right there. But that's what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus commands his followers to make disciples. One of my friends put it so eloquently. He says, Jesus never commanded the church to go to the, or the world to go to church. He commanded the church to go to the world, to go to the world, to make disciples, to make more Christians, to make more believers, to bring people to saving faith bringing people to believe and to trust in Jesus. 
As we go, we are to elevate Jesus, entice people to Jesus, convince people to Jesus, and then baptize them. Help them make the break from their old way of life to their new way of life. From being, from being among to being called out. That's what baptism marks. So we are united with Christ, that Jesus is king, Caesar in the world, and Satan and self no longer are. And then teach them to obey. We are all students. As Christians, we are all students and we are all teachers. We are all disciples who need to be discipled and who in turn then need to disciple. It's a beautiful system that the Lord has set up. What we have learned, we are to pass on. We are to seek out what others have learned so that we too can learn and grow and mature. And the process keeps going. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what we are called to teach. That's why I talk about Jesus so much. Look to Jesus, learn from Jesus, live more like Jesus. That's the whole point. And then healing. Our most dire sickness is sin. Sin is displacing God with the self. It's disobeying his commands. It's dishonoring our creation in his image by using our minds and our bodies for unrighteousness. And you may think, oh, I'm not that bad. God grades on a curve. I'm doing real good because have you seen everybody else? And God doesn't do that way. Dishonoring our creation in his image gets into our thoughts, our motives and intentions, and our actions. And as Scripture so eloquently, clearly says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, do not be deceived. We are unrighteous. That's our most dire sickness. And it's most dire because it's eternal. It transcends the physical into the eternal realm. That's why Jesus had to pay such a high price for sin to be forgiven. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, by his affliction, by his suffering, by his pain, ye, we, all of us have been healed. So Jesus takes care of our ultimate sickness, which is sin. But what about the other frailties and conditions and afflictions that our physical bodies suffer through? God can and does still heal. I think he heals us more often than we think, simply through prayer. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gifts believers with the gift of healing. It does seem that that gift is rare. And if a person as a follower of Jesus does have that gift, I am absolutely certain they are not, they are not starting a company, they are not starting a website, they are not starting a ministry, they are not drawing attention to themselves, and they are certainly not making money off of it. Those who have the honest to goodness to spiritual gift of healing, you will never know unless you're the one who's healed. But God does do that. God, of course, heals directly if he so chooses. 
And I think God heals us more than we think. But most of the healing the people of Jesus, most of the healing the church brings to the world is done in other ways. Compassionate care, mercy, kindness, suffering alongside, provision of basic needs, modern medicine, modern hospitals, the the whole concept, the idea of human worth and human dignity, of life being precious, that solely comes from a Christian worldview. The pagan worldviews that preceded Jesus had no philosophical standing. They had no philosophical orientation compared to human beings created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we inherently have dignity and worth and value regardless of, yes, even deformities and disabilities and social status and and, and intellectual limitations or anything else. A human being with a beating heart, well, even before, a beating heart, has a human soul. Therefore, they are precious and valuable. That's why Christians are pro-life. Because life is created in the image of God. And so the mercy and care and help and hope that has been brought to the world is done in the name of Jesus. And sometimes there is still healing that does not happen. Affliction is perhaps the fastest path to spiritual growth and intimacy with God. We don't like it, but maybe sometimes we need it. And the other thing is this, because of Jesus, every ounce of suffering, every physical weakness is temporary. It will end, and it will be replaced with perfect health, perfect joy, and everything else. So what now? Each disciple must preach the reality of Jesus through the relevance of their testimony. You don't have to stand in a pulpit. You don't have to go down to the pier to witness or anything else. But you have a testimony because of what Jesus has done in your life. A picture in Revelation from those who have overcome says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The reality of Jesus combined with the power of his reality being present in your life. No one can refute it. They can choose to not believe it. They could dismiss it. They can ridicule you. They could think you're nuts. That's all fine. But they can't say that is untrue, that is unrealistic, that is unbelievable. All they can do is dismiss it or disregard it. But it's your testimony. Let's see what God does. Every disciple, number two, every disciple must continue to learn and pass on that learning. As a disciple of Jesus, look for one or more people you can be learning from, but then also specifically look for one or more people that you can be helping bring along in the process to encourage, to pray for, to teach, to be there for. Learn and pass on the learning. 
Then number three, we are the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus to bring hope, help, healing, and life into this world, both abundant life here and eternal life there to all. I want to end with two verses. No room on the notes, so they're just on the screen. You can, you can note which ones they are. From the Apostle Paul, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Take that one to heart. And then lastly, this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation's a gift. It's already been given to you. But once you have that gift, put it into practice. Put it to work. Exercise it. Use it. Enjoy it. Declare it. Proclaim it. Show it to the world. Because in doing that, that's how God is at work in you and that's how God is at work in the world. As his people, the people who belong to him, that's what we are called to do.